we went through decades upon decades, not very far back, where there was very significant evidence of racial steering on the part of real estate agents. There was very significant evidence of redlining and racial discrimination on the part of financial institutions. And there was very clever use of growth management and zoning instruments on the part of local government to exclude people that they didn't want to exclude from their jurisdictions. Now that's real estate expert Stuart Gabriel, and he says redlining helped cause the crisis of homelessness. That, of course, has plagued Los Angeles since long before the onset of COVID-19. But will the pandemic make homelessness even harder to solve? Hi, I'm Norman Alney with the UCLA Anderson podcast, How the World Works. I'm privileged to be joined by Stuart Gabriel. He's Arden Realty Chair at Anderson and Director of the Richard S. Zyman Center for Real Estate at UCLA. And Stuart Gabriel, great to have you with us. Warren, always a pleasure. Many homeless people are especially vulnerable to COVID-19. They have health problems, they have age issues. So the city adopted Project Room Key to move them into empty motels. Is that sustainable? Warren, that's a really good question. The opportunity to move homeless into empty motel space was facilitated by the by the virus itself and by the fact that we were sheltering in place by the fact that tourism to the Los Angeles area had essentially ceased. And as a consequence of that, we had tremendous amount of vacant space in the hotel sector. So if the virus persists, tourism will be de minimis. It'll be really constrained. And in that particular respect, there'll be some opportunity to continue to house uh, the homeless in that empty motel space. But if the economy comes back, particularly tourism, that's over. Exactly right. So the question with respect to the availability of space for homeless is, can we convert some of that motel space permanently? Is there any economic opportunity to do so? Or is there opportunity for development of, of new space for homeless population? And as I'm sure you're aware, there's tremendous uh, development going on on the VA side in West LA as is pertinent to the veteran population, and there is an expectation that three quarters or more or of the homeless veteran population will be housed in that absolutely path-breaking development on the VA site. But that notwithstanding, we have very, very little in the way of new development that's pertinent to the homeless population. Well, the veterans are a particularly sympathetic uh, element of the homeless population, but they're by no means all of it. It's uh, 60, 70,000 people in Los Angeles County, depending on what year gets counted. And it's often said that the only real cure is permanent supportive housing. But of course, it takes a long time to build that. And in the meantime, more and more people become homeless. So is that really a cure? I'm very pleased with, with that, whatever accretions to the housing stock we can get through low-income housing tax credits and through a permanent supportive housing and the like. The problem is that it's not clear that those developments add up to anything that's material relative to the magnitude of the problem. If I were to say that the, the new supply was commensurate to a, a glass of water into the Santa Monica Bay, that would be a bit of an exaggeration. It's more than that. On the other hand, one of the problems here, Warren, is that 
the new supply comes almost exclusively through public financing sources, as I've indicated through low-income housing tax credits and the like. Those tax credits are allocated by the federal government. There's a new state allocation as well. But with that all, we still need to get private sector into the game. And what I mean by that is that we need to make it financially worthwhile for private development of very low-income housing supply, of permanent supportive housing supply. We need to do this without reliance, without dependence on government funding sources. And the only way that we can do that, Warren, is to go to areas where land is cheap. Now, land is not cheap in the LA Basin. Uh, in other words, we can do affordable development on affordable land. And so one of the things that I've advocated for a very long time is to put money into transportation infrastructure. Because what we need to do is open up affordable land supply. And if we can open up places like Palmdale, Lancaster, this and that, uh, I know they're further out, but the point is that's where we can build material amounts of affordable supply that could put a dent in this issue. In the meantime, to what extent is the homeless problem, which is being added to all of the time, a function of the economics of the residential uh, real estate economy? Well, a myriad of factors uh, uh, are at work here. And, and clearly, as you well know, the homelessness situation here in California dates way back to the 1970s and to the deinstitutionalization of our state mental hospitals so that, you know, roughly one third of homeless population uh, derived from a population that uh, had some form of mental illness and the like. So that's been terribly, terribly problematical. There are other factors that have come in, but here's what you're asking about. You're asking about the availability of, of housing that's pertinent for very, very low income population. And the answer is that there's very little availability. The answer is that coastal California has become impossibly expensive. And that's, of course, from north of San Francisco all the way to the Mexican border. It means that we're in some ways victims of our own success. It means that these metropolitan areas have seen massive immigration, massive tech development, massive income creation. Uh, and all of this has pushed out low-income populations, middle-income populations, those that can't afford uh, the $3,000 plus uh, studio apartment rents in San Francisco. So, uh, yes, the the high land rents and the very expensive real estate values of the area has been a very serious negative for the uh, homeless. If I could just say one other thing here, Warren, that is with the COVID. And with the COVID, we've seen, you know, really a, a very serious economic downturn, a double-digit unemployment rate, weakness in many sectors of our economy. Uh, and this generates additional economic distress and additional homelessness. So I would add two factors here that are likely associated with increasing numbers of homeless in the Los Angeles area, not decreasing. And those two factors are A, the economic downturn and everything that pertains there too, people losing their jobs, all the rest, and B, the fact that we have moratoria on rental eviction right now. But those moratoria are set to expire, they're very time limited. They've expired in many other parts of the country. And as we see those who are 
newly jobless, without economic means, and now pushed out of their rental units, it's almost undeniably the case that the homeless population will increase. Well, so we have a shortage of housing, and that's one of the things that's doing it, or, or at least a shortage of affordable uh, housing. What about the commercial sector? To what extent is it affected by the coronavirus, and in what ways? Well, that's a very, very big question, Warren. As you know, the commercial sector encompasses everything which isn't really owner-occupied residential. And we have components of that sector that have been affected in literally a dire fashion as a consequence of the virus. And that includes what we call the hospitality sector, necessarily inclusive of hotels. It includes very much of the retail sector, the mall sector. There are estimates that upwards to two-thirds of the malls in the United States are going to fail as a consequence of this whole event and all the rest. So the virus is, is taking down major sectors of real estate, and with it, the performance of commercial mortgage-backed securities tied to those sectors of real estate and all the rest. So that, again, it varies from sector to sector, but major sectors of retail, major sectors of you know, malls as one dimension of retail, the hospitality sector, et cetera, are, have been set back profoundly as a consequence of the COVID. As this continues, and as retail goes more and more online and less and less uh, in buildings, uh, how is that going to uh, affect the way we live uh, and the way that uh, real estate uh, is valued, bought and sold? So you're entirely right. Uh, there was a trend, and the trend preceded COVID, and the trend was towards e-commerce. The trend was towards uh, ever-increasing online sales. And that trend was to the detriment, certainly of the traditional mall sector, certainly to the traditional anchor tenants in that mall sector, the Sears, the JCPenney's, the Macy's. Well, that trend, of course, has been absolutely shocked and exacerbated with the COVID. As you know, the retail sector is suffering terribly. We expect that many parts of that sector will not come back, and there will be problems really for years and years to come with that sector to the point where now we're talking about ghost malls in many parts of the country, and we're talking about repurposing of major retail centers. One of the things we started to talk about in our conversation here today, Warren, was the lack of affordable housing, and it's entirely possible that in coming days, we're gonna see some repurposing of malls into residential. As you know, the West Side Pavilion is being repurposed out of a retail mall and into a Google office site. That one is not the first or the last. There are estimates that we have way too much retail space relative to what the future holds. Back to the homeless, uh, could the emptying out of retail businesses that perhaps on the lower end uh, make way for what is referred to as permanent supportive housing. You wouldn't have to build it. Well, Warren, the answer to that question in general, and generically speaking, the answer is yes. There will be uh, excess space available, a very well-located space, and space that's served by public transportation and all the rest uh, that will be repurposed. There's no question about that. It's not a free lunch. They're repurposing both in terms of the needs of permanent supportive housing and with respect to what's existing on this site, mean that there will be 
expenditures and the expenditures won't be trivial. Nonetheless, you're not starting from scratch. And uh, I expect that we will see some of that going forward. It may not only be repurposed into permanent supportive, it, it's more likely it's going to be repurposed into market rate and privately developed housing, which could include some affordable housing. Uh, we still need the funding sources and more ample funding sources to get to the very lowest rung on the ladder, that being the permanent supportive housing, whereby that permanent supportive housing includes an array of social services that are appropriate to the homeless and requiring a very experienced operator. Let me ask you a question about uh, something that uh, uh, is already underway, but uh, not yet sufficiently uh, to raise the kind of issue that I uh, am going to raise. Nonetheless, it ultimately presumably will be, uh, and that is climate change. When you have uh, wildfires, when you have sea level rise uh, and other things that uh, impinge on some of that extraordinarily valuable property that you talked about before, not just on the coast, but in the uh, uh, mountains as well. Um, is there going to be a major shift away from those places, uh, from people who can then afford uh, more than they could before? And will there be a sort of climate change gentrification as a result? Uh, that's a hard question. I don't now, if I would go as far as to say climate change gentrification, what is very clear at the current moment is that fire insurance is very difficult in some of these far-flung areas, and the far-flung areas are less developable today because of the prevalence of uh, very damaging fires. So that will uh, put some boundary on where we see development. The forecasts going into the future are negative with respect to uh, housing on the coast. So again, another boundary condition there. But I will say the following, that's climate change on the one hand. On the other hand, we have this COVID. And COVID is already inducing a very, very interesting shift in where people want to live and where people want to work. And you're probably aware of the fact, Warren, that people are streaming out of the Bay Area. Tech workers are streaming out of the Bay Area. They're streaming to secondary cities. They're streaming to interior cities. And this includes millennials as well. They're streaming to cheaper places. So from San Francisco to Boulder or to Austin or to Portland, if you're a tech worker, a place that's got amenities that you're looking for, as people are moving out of these highly dense areas, Midtown Manhattan is a perfect example where you ride an elevator up 40 floors to get to your unit. That's become an extremely difficult proposition in today's world. People want some space around them. They want to reduce density around them. They want to increase health-related benefits that are associated with reduced density. So there are many changes in the locational footprint of households and firms that are currently working themselves through the system. And of course, uh, a lot of the uh, businesses that we talked about before which can function and will function with electronic information are such that those places could, in fact, continue to function. So might we see then a hollowing out of the cities while the same kinds of industries, at least some of them, continue to function? I think we're seeing ample evidence of that even as we speak today, Warren. We're seeing that 
the housing sector has be, become very hot, very strong with strong upside price pressures in areas that we had sort of given up for debt. In other words, all of a sudden we see the rise of the suburbs. We see interest on the part of millennials in suburban locations. We see people moving not only to suburbia, but also to exurbia and also to second tier interior cities. And we may see cities and states that we count as being red begin to turn purple and some of the vice versa as well as people move around based on differentials in cost of living, based on differentials in house prices. Example here that you may be aware of is the fact that Goldman Sachs in New York took its entire back office out of very expensive office space in midtown Manhattan and put the entire back office of Goldman Sachs in Salt Lake City. That's not going to be a unique example. That's going to be more of a mainstream example as we go forward. Let me ask you about the November 3rd ballot in California, and very particularly Proposition 15, uh, which uh, finally revises or proposes to revise Proposition 13 from 1978, uh, which established the situation we have now with the property tax. I know you did a PhD thesis on this, so I'm really interested in uh, whether you think this will happen, and if so, if, if it does, what are the consequences? So, Warren, firstly, I don't know if it's going to happen or not. I haven't seen polling around it, but I would imagine that it's very popular. And it's probably popular for a very simple reason, and that is those who aren't in the business sector who, who look at the possibility of a higher property tax rate on non-owner-occupied, non-residential property, think, aha, we have a free lunch. We'll just raise the property rate on that particular sector. We'll, there'll be a bunch more revenue, and away we go. And the reason we have to think about that is that business is mobile. And business relocates from New York City to Salt Lake City on the basis of a myriad of factors that include labor costs, and they include taxes, and they include public safety, and they include a whole variety of other issues. You have people streaming out of uh, the hottest areas of California. You have people leaving downtown San Francisco, residential rents in San Francisco have fallen, et cetera, and they're moving to far-flung places. Well, business can move too. And Facebook just said their entire operation is going to be virtual for the next year. In other words, everybody can go home. As long as you've got an internet hookup, you can work from Tahiti. So the bottom line here is that we have to be careful about this uh, split role because it's very possible that raising tax on commercial uh, property, but actually in lower tax revenue. In other words, we don't want to exacerbate this movement of business out of the state and this movement of business out of the state and this allegation that California is an adverse tax climate for business has been around for a very long time. And if we keep piling up here, uh, we may get an outcome that we don't like and an outcome that we didn't anticipate. And the outcome is uh, really one that's detrimental to uh, state budgets. If we put together all the things we've talked about in the past few minutes, uh, it sounds to me as if there is at least a possibility uh, that uh, California might see a massive exodus of both business and residents. Well, Warren, I, I hope I didn't convey that. The uh, 
California is a place that's gone through many, many, many cycles at many, many points in time. The demise of California has been predicted. Uh, typically, uh, you know, we see adjustments. We continually see adjustments, but uh, California remains an entirely attractive place for many, many reasons. But I guess what I'm saying here, Warren, is we shouldn't take any of that for granted. And, and please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we don't need greater support of our local public schools. I'm not saying that we don't need greater support of the best public university system in the world. I'm not saying that we don't need budget for police or fire. Uh, so it's not that I'm suggesting that we don't need tax revenue. It's just that I'm suggesting that we have to do this in a way that's smart. We have to do it in a way that's evidence-based and scientific in a way that's going to be least disruptive to the climate that creates jobs, that creates business locations, that creates the revenue flows that allow for these tax collections. Let me ask you this in the context of what we've been hearing lately about systemic racism and how deep-seated it is just by the phrase alone, what it suggests uh, in California, as well as many other places, it's not just the South. But to what extent is that a problem? Has that been a problem and a, and a sort of fundamental uh, element of real estate in California? Well, with respect to the residential sector, historically, it's been a very serious concern. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, we went through decades upon decades, not very far back, where there was very significant evidence of racial steering on the part of real estate agents. There was very significant evidence of redlining and racial discrimination on the part of financial institutions. And there was very clever use of growth management and zoning instruments on the part of local government to exclude people that they didn't want to exclude from their jurisdictions. That not only being race-based, but also, of course, income-based. So if you ask the question sort of as an aside, why don't we have any affordable housing? It, much of the answer has to do with the fact that local government, for the most part, has set aside really limited and, and I would say de minimis amount of land within their jurisdiction for building of, of housing that would involve entrance to the jurisdiction on the part of low-income households. But putting that aside and going back to the race issue, here's what I want to say. Uh, I worked at the Federal Reserve way back when, and way back when means at a time when uh, these issues exploded, and we're talking about the 1970s. And at that time, there was much new legislation that came to bear, uh, the Community Reinvestment Act, which required banks as part of ongoing regulatory oversight to uh, assure lending in all parts of their catchment area notably including minority neighborhoods and all the rest. In other words, it forbade uh, redlining on the basis of geography. Uh, there were also very significant federal statute that forbids uh, discrimination on the basis of race. Uh, and in addition to that, very significant evaluation, by the way, of economics research and all the rest of racial steering of home buyers and all the rest. I myself have participated in really ongoing research on all of these topics. So uh, the courts have been very active. The 
Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice traditionally has been active. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, together with the Federal Reserve, together with the other regulators, together with uh, uh, CFPB, together with the whole alphabet soup of, of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and all the rest of all, worked against racial discrimination in mortgage lending. And I think we've had quite a good measure of success. So I'm, I'm saying bottom line two things. I'm saying a lot of the stuff uh, has been historically uh, very, very troubling and problematical. B, we've pushed back on it to a very significant degree, but C, we're not there in the sense that it's not as if this story is over. We still have a lot of work to do. Let me thank you for being as clear as you are about what might happen and as nuanced about what the consequences might be uh, in the future. As for myself, uh, I'm a fourth generation Californian. I'm not going anywhere. And it sounds like you're not either. Again, uh, Stuart Gabriel, Arden Realty Chair at Anderson, Director of the Richard S. Simon Center for Real Estate at UCLA. Thanks so much for being on How the World Works.